This is episode 38 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast. We're finishing Men's Roundup 2019, Kingdom and Community. This is session four, Sunday morning with Rick McKinley. What do you think of the family band? That was amazing. And the sun came out right in the middle of the thing. So good. I was thinking of how incredible it is that um, we sat here in the rain together for a weekend and we're all still here. Uh, Being from California, I try to picture what those dudes would have done at a family camp like this. They'd be like, isn't it going to be online? (laughs) They'd pack up and be gone. But we're here. Because we're men of Oregon, men of the Northwest. Roll up your sleeves, we're headed for winter, boys. (laughs) And congratulations to the Ducks for an incredible win yesterday. And to all you beavers, aloha. (laughs) That is terrible. I'm sorry, I'm not. Uh, I know, I, you guys really liked me up until that moment. Um, uh, just kidding. It's good to be with you, and I have just enjoyed being with you this weekend, so thank you for having me. And I want to recognize all of the dudes who helped put this on. Would you just give them a round of applause? They start in the middle of the week, and uh, it's pretty amazing to come and to just watch what happens. You know, as we think about the things that we've talked about this weekend, um, one of the things that's big on my heart and the reason that I'm passionate about the things that we're talking about is because I have sons that are growing up in a world that isn't, this isn't new for them. This is what the world's like for them. They're, this is their native world. So for many of us, it's like, what? look at all these changes up here above the iceberg. And for them, it's like, no, that's just high school, right? And it struck me how different our experience of the world is. I bought this uh, a few years ago. I bought a 1965 T-Bird, right? I mean, it's four years older than me, so it's awesome. And uh, it's totally stock, and everything worked, and uh, we get in there. I mean, the radio works, the sweet old AM radio, right? You turn it on, and you've got the push button, and it's like, clunk, 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 clunk. So the boys get in, and they're not little. They're like high school or even older. And uh, I'm like, check out this radio. And they both go, and they go like this, Right? pushing on the knob. And I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, how do you turn it on? I'm like, you turn it on. (laughs) But they grew up in a world where everything was digital. There was no mechanical radios, right? 
My son, my youngest son, fished this summer. Uh, he's been fishing in the summers in Alaska for sockeye. And uh, so we get boxes of fish when they finally get them home. And so I said, well, you go pick up the boxes. Uh, just get a check from mom because they don't take cards. And he's down there. And um, I hear from the guys who kind of run the fish co-op. They're like, yeah, it took Bryce 10 minutes to fill out a check because he's never filled out a check before. And it's not because he doesn't have a checking account or bills, it's because it's all been card. It's all, he pays bills online. And you recognize like, this is a different world for them, right? I mean, to go back and remember the day where the phone was attached to the wall and like you had to, to talk to your girlfriend in front of everybody. Or if you were lucky, you could like have one in your bedroom unless you were bad and then they'd take your phone away. And it's not attached to your hip, right? And you think like when you leave home and you're like, I forgot my phone. And we all act like we're gonna die or like we're gonna be attacked by a mob and we're not gonna be able to call anyone. <laughs> you're like, this has been since 2007 that we've had the iPhone, right? And so this world that we live in is traveling at such a fast pace and these changes are taking place so quickly. And I think for many of us, we want it to go back to the way it was, but I'm sorry to say I don't think it's going back to the way it was. And for the sake of my kids and your kids and our grandkids, we need to be able to pass on a faith to them and a way of being followers of Christ in a world that's going to make sense to them because it's not going to be easy for them but if they see it as having to choose between being uh, kind of just secluded off with church people believing this stuff out of a book which they don't even read books it's all on their app right like if it looks like I have to become Amish or just go with this world that I work in and that my God's using my gifts and I have relationships with non-Christians and they feel torn in that place and it's ours to pass on to them the reality that you can be faithful to Jesus in a world but not of it. And we want to pass on skills for you to do that and hopefully as you live in my house and you live in our church, you're going to grow up and pick up on some of those things. So this just isn't about us and our moment. But I can promise you if we don't change, the next generation might not come with us. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that because we've already seen it, right, with millennials. And so as men who carry the responsibility for the church for shaping the culture and the context of what faithfulness looks like for us in our time, what does it look like for us to be the people of Jesus right now? And so that's why I'm talking about these things, and there's more information than I can get through. But today I want to talk about some practices that I think keep us in our story, right? And they yet also are a blessing to the world around us. They, they're the faithful presence of Christ in a world that needs Christ. But they're also prophetic in the sense that they critique the culture at large. They push back on the 
common story that everybody's living in and they critique it and they help us resist the idols. And if you think back to Israel in the Old Testament, why did they have all these festivals? Why did they have a calendar that sort of organized the year around their worship? Because God wanted them so much to be that light to the nations, nations that were just pursuing whatever it is they wanted to pursue in idolatry and pleasure. And they wanted, he, God wanted them to be preserved as his people in their story, but he also wanted them to be protected from these alternative gods and alternative stories around them so that they would be a blessing to the Gentiles, right? That's why there's calendars, and I have a friend that's a rabbi and a friend that's a Muslim, and uh, we went to Morocco together for this conversation between imams, rabbis, and pastors, evangelical pastors. And so you're in Morocco, right? And I'm like, I've never been anywhere like this. Uh, it's an Arab culture. And what struck me is that they all had, uh, they, both of them practiced this story. So you walk into the room and there's like 15 imams in their whole garb. And then there's like 15 rabbis. And then there's just pastors where we look like this. We're like, hey, what's up? You know? <laughs> and in the middle of the meetings, the imams get up and they leave to go pray X amount of times. And uh, the rabbis have little hats on and they're talking about the calendar. And they're like, what do you guys do? And we all look at each other like, we, uh, we pray for meals sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, in one sense, that's because we're free, right? We don't have to earn our way to salvation. But in another sense, they're practicing something that I think God had the Israel's uh, practice so that they could be kept in the story, knowing that there's powerful stories out there that we're living amongst that can easily kind of pick us up, and Jesus becomes a subplot. So I want to talk about what these practices do. These are all biblical things that Jesus calls us to. And there's the first slide that I want you to see is this slide. <laughs> these practices are triformational, and this is what they, I mean. For us to practice them, it requires us to go to Jesus so that he can change our heart to be more faithful to him. At the same time when we practice these things, it blesses the people around us because the world, whatever the narrative is, is it's a narrative that wears people out and uses them and creates anxiety. And so we have, God has not called us into fear and anxiety and to the rat race of our culture. He's called us into freedom. But it's also... A practice that resists and it's simultaneously I'm not saying that then you do this then you do this I'm saying simply by practicing the things Jesus called us to we find freedom and it is viral in the sense that it pushes back and it blesses some of those practices and and you can come up with more as you read the New Testament but one is that we hear and obey the word and spirit 
One of the challenges that I see for the modern church is we adopted the educational system that says, come here, grow, and after you've grown, then you go. But Jesus said, whoever hears my words and puts them into the practice, he is the wise man, right? He didn't say, come to my seminary, to the Jesus Academy, Peter, and after about three years, you'll get a certificate, and then we're going to get you into some local mission stuff. No, he said, leave your nets and follow me. Right? Come follow me. Come put it into practice. They follow him for a few years, and they watch what he does, and then he sends them off two by two, and he says, hey, here's what I want you to do, guys. I want you to raise the dead and cast out demons and heal the sick and do this stuff in my name. You're like, wait a second. I need a class for that, right? Shouldn't I get some training on the whole, like, raise the dead thing, at least? I mean, that, that's a big one. And what we've done in the West with this educational system, we've said, you know what? We need more information. And if we get enough information, then one day I'll be able to get on mission with Jesus. And I'm saying that is not a biblical response to the word of God. We are to hear and to trust, hear and believe, hear and obey. And it is an immediate posture of the heart that says when Jesus calls, I'm ready to respond. And what would our world look like if the church listened with the anticipation that we were going to respond? And not ask why. Not what about this? And we're great at that, right? And they were back in the day, too. Jesus says, love your neighbor. And they're like, hmm, what does this mean, this love the neighbor thing? Who is my neighbor? What is a neighbor? <laughs> right? How is a question of apathy? Right? How matters, but only when you actually want to go do something. But we can spend our whole life going, I just need more information before I share my faith. I need more information before I bring my neighbors into my house. I need more skill sets. Jesus says, no, I am with you always. And guess what he has? All authority in heaven and on earth. Right? And you're like, yeah, but Francis Chan wrote this book. And uh, I'm telling you... <laughs> And I love Francis, right? But I'm just saying. So the three practices I want to talk about today are Sabbath, hospitality, and generosity. Sabbath, hospitality, and generosity. We live in a world where we are always on. So much so that you hear now secular, um, you read secular magazines that talk about taking uh, screen fasts. Right? We're fasting from screens, and they turn it into this really mindful spiritual thing. Like, what are you doing? I'm fasting from screens. Ooh, that's amazing, right? <laughs> Not fasting to pay attention to Christ in me, fasting from like, just I just want to be by myself a little bit more. But what, what it tells us is that this, this, chaotic culture that says have you checked your email have you checked your text messages have you checked instagram and facebook and look somebody likes something and we're always on not to mention the fact 
Like, remember when you had to get up and turn the channel? <laughs> now you can literally, like, open Netflix, press play, and sit for 24 hours straight. And it's like, next episode. Boom. Like, Blue Bloods for just days, right? We're just like, watch that forever. And so not only is there a, a, an enormous amount that is pulling for us, distracting us. This, and the technology is geared to distract, right? The first time you download an app on the phone, it says, would you like notifications? Yes, I want you to tell me every three minutes, whatever it is you do. Weather update, weather update, whoa, ESPN, ding, 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 ding. You know, and you're like, ha. Ah. But it's not just that, it's that we're, we're gonna, we need to rest not just from something, but to something. And that's what Sabbath teaches us. Look with me at Exodus chapter 20. God creates this world and it's very good in the Genesis account. God is the agent of creation. He expends energy on it and he rests from it without anxiety that it will continue. Think about that. He creates the world. Boom, seven days, the world, the universe. And then it says he rests. It's like, wait a second. This is new, this whole creation thing. Should you really take a nap? But he rests without anxiety, but in enjoyment of it. Later in Exodus, during the tabernacle commands in Exodus, in the tabernacle building, there's, there's this confrontation where it essentially says, if you don't rest, you will die. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day, keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But at the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor your foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days God made the world, the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. And now we have taken and turned it into denominations and all those things, but the intent of it was that your life would pattern the life of God in creation. That you would be able to stop and, and remember that God himself stopped. And, and the Hebrew was literally he re-selfed himself. That's what he did when he stopped. He Sabbath to get his self back. So if God needed to do that, do you think you might, right? If we are to be agents with God in creating, right, his co-creators, then we rest to get ourself back so that we can know who we are. We're not our role. We're not what our bosses think. We can know whose we are. We do not belong to the economy. We don't belong to the workforce. We belong to the Father, who has called us beloved sons, and we rest so that we can get our self back. How, do we, how can we be his people 
in this world that we are living in. And if we don't rest, and we know this as men who work, if we don't rest, then in our depletion, we become objects of consumption and busyness without whole selves in relation to God. We, d- we lose our sense of agency to engage our family and our neighbors. And, and, and you know what that feels like if you've ever just been so worn out and you're like, all I want to do is veg, right? That isn't Sabbath. That's going, I am so depleted that I, don't, I can't talk to my kids. I don't want to play with my kids. I don't want to talk to my wife right now. I just want to watch Sports Center, right? <laughs> and I'm not saying that there isn't time and that that can't be part of it, but I, he's tapping into something that is an epidemic in America culture, which is that we run until we're depleted. And God has given us this gift of Sabbath to put us in sync with the rhythm of creation. And he warns Israel, he says, look, and it's not really safe for you if you violate those rhythms of God's way of seeing things. And so Sabbath is this gear that we're supposed to shift into once a week where we can receive the gifts that God has given us. And that requires us to pause and to slow down and to wait. You don't see any, adver- any, any, any little trinket, any little app that says this will help you pause, slow down, and wait, right? It's about urgency, efficiency, productivity. I want it now. I want it this way. And God said, that's not why I put you into the world. It's interesting when you follow the trajectory of Sabbath in the Old Testament, because when you get to Deuteronomy in chapter 5, it says this. Observe, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son, nor your daughter, your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your town, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Okay, so he doesn't go back to creation now. He goes to their salvation story. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe Sabbath. And so Sabbath on the one hand is a story that keeps us in the rhythm of creation, but it is also a gift where we celebrate the fact that we have been redeemed. If you think about Israel in Egypt, there is no rest in Pharaoh's empire. And empires tend to be built on cheap labor, tireless work, and more production. And so Pharaoh says, more bricks, more bricks, more bricks. 
And God comes with this powerful redemption from the slavery of this pharaonic empire system built on cheap labor, tireless work, and the false idol of security built on the fear of scarcity. So Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's empire, we never have enough. And there's anxiety about that. And so we have to oppress people to have enough. And there it is that God shows up and says, you know what? There is no Sabbath for the poor. And that bothers me. So he, he rips them out of Pharaoh's Hand And he brings them into the freedom of the land where they experience the fact that they have been saved by a mighty hand. And not only do you not have to work under that oppressive regime, but you get to play and dance and sing free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And Jesus says, if I did it for Israel, think of the redemption I have done for you, for all creation. And yet you aren't going to stop and dance and play and pray and remember, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. This is why we need our brothers of color to help us remember what a powerful salvation it is because they have experienced this in such a more profound way than many of you have, many of us have. To practice Sabbath is to resist the world's continual cry for more and faster and cheaper, and we get to rest and need less and want less and be content and generous and to share. And so what Sabbath can be for us in our moment, if you get together with your little group and you say, let's, let's make that day amazing. Let's eat, let's rest, let's turn off our phones, let's get together with our kids and play. Then what happens is your coworkers start to look at you and go, what are you doing Sunday? It's like, well, I practice this radical identity with me and my brothers, where we remember that we are gods and that he's running the world and he's the one that's running my work. Like he's gonna make sure that the world's still here when I wake up tomorrow. And so it's not dependent on me being on. And so you can see where if we practice vocation in a way that God sends us as sons on mission to help uh, build our communities and help them flourish but then we get to stop that day and we get to celebrate our God it means that faithfulness and, and celebration of redemption God has given this gift within the rhythms of our week now some of us will protest theologically I don't have to practice Sabbath no you don't have to it's not the Old Testament law but what I am saying is that if it's not going to be Sabbath, there needs to be practices in which the normal, ordinary things about our week, our work, our rest, our money, who sits at our table, that those somehow reflect our story. Because otherwise, we're going to celebrate our money and our time 
right? And our, our rest in some other way. And these are ways when the world looks on and they, they long for that kind of, wow, there can be a day without anxiety or fear where you're actually free because in your heart you trust that God is running the world, not me. And as his son, I get to just play and pray and sing praise to his name. And you can't fake Sabbath which is such a bummer, because uh, I think most of us, well, in Amos 8, God writes, the prophets write to enforce the covenant, and it's as though God peers into their heart, and he can hear them saying, I can't wait till Sabbath is over so I can sell more grain, and God calls them on it. It's like, you love working so much, you love producing so much that that what this gift that I've given you has become this hoop that you just want to jump through and get through. If you're not getting ahead, you're falling behind. That's the world that we live in. But it's stopping and resting that God calls holy. And so Sabbath is one way that we can maintain our identity as God's people in this moment. A couple ways to do that. Avoid technology. Connect with loved ones. This is easy. Get outside, right? Don't spend for a day. Try that. See how that goes. Share a meal with people. Get your family and go care uh, for the poor or serve at a homeless shelter. Like, do something, but make the day special. It's beautiful when I talk to my Jewish friends because they actually... Don't, they don't look at Sabbath as Sabbath is the day I get to stop. They see their work as working towards Sabbath. So they're like, okay, we're at work and we're working today, but we're also thinking that we're working towards Sabbath because Sabbath then becomes the pinnacle and work kind of fuels the rest of it. I thought it's a beautiful way to look at it. The other practice that I want us to consider is the practice of hospitality. Sacred hospitality. You know, we live in a moment that is not hospitable. It's an inhospitable culture where we are othering each other in ways that demonize the other that we disagree with. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are sent by God to the other, right? To love and to bless and to know and to care for and to have compassion for the other. And just like Sabbath for Israel, hospitality was rooted in their understanding of their own personal understanding. That God had welcomed them. He says, don't forget that you were strangers, but I have welcomed you. Our experience in Ephesians where he tells us, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people. Our experience of being welcomed by God is where hospitality starts. Not with us throwing parties for the Super Bowl, right? I want us to think about this theologically, 
Jesus, a, a, a dominant amount of his ministry was spent in the context of hospitality. Why is that guy eating and drinking with sinners? And he wasn't a good guest. He'd be a guest in some Pharisee's house and a lady comes in and breaks, uh, you know, alabaster jar all over him. And he's like, and then he, Jesus puts it back on that dude. He goes, you know, when I came in, you never washed my feet. <laughs> she hasn't quit. You didn't kiss me. She hasn't quit, right? And you're just like, what kind of guest does that? You're like, you're supposed to say, hey, would you like something to drink? Have a seat. I'll be right with you. Not this. The command to practice hospitality doesn't begin with us being the one who's offering it. It starts when we understand that God has offered it to us. We were the strangers. We were the far off. And he welcomed us in, brought us near called us to himself. One of the reasons that God comes down on Israel and sends them ex into exile is because they forgot their own stranger status in Egypt, and they began to oppress the strangers and foreigners that were in their land. They forgot about that, and God had issues with that. The command to practice hospitality is given to us in Romans chapter 12. It's a very simple verse. He says, share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. And the reason we practice it, because it's something that we have to continue to grow in. Biblical hospitality is always to the stranger, right? Now that's a long way to start, but it's important to think when you eat your meals, which you're going to eat your meals this week, this month, would it be possible for you to have a spot at the table for other people that don't know Jesus? That you can invite into your home and begin to get to know them. People were asking me, how do we, how do we address all these different groups up above the tip of the iceberg. Well, all those people have names and phone numbers and they live in specific places. What would it look like to get to know your neighbor, to get to know someone who completely disagrees with you, to find the other, the stranger, the person who is ethnically different, who is socioeconomically different, and say, I want to create space for you so that we can sit together and believe that Christ sits with us at this table. My friend Diane was so amazing at hospitality. She passed away about 12 years ago. But I remember she would put on these dinners and invite all these just diverse group of people. And I was over there one night before we, the people came and she was walking around the table and she would stop at a chair and she'd bow her head and then she'd go to the next chair and bow her head. And I was like, what are you doing to the chair, right? And she says, well, I'm praying for this person. She knew where they would seat. Right? I'm praying that God will open their heart. I'm praying that there would be a window of opportunity. When we spoke, I, I taught hospitality at my church. And this woman who's in her 60s lives in an apartment complex downtown. 
God convicted her that hospitality is, is the dominant way that the church has evangelized throughout the centuries, that it grew through hospitality. And she was convicted and felt like God had laid on her heart this other guy that's in the apartment complex who they knew were dealing drugs. People worked together to get him evicted, right? And that convicted her. So she, this little woman just knocks on the drug dealer's door and she's like, would you come eat with me? And of course, this dude's like, what? <laughs> she's like, I bought a pizza and a bottle of wine in this little you know, common area. Would you come eat with me? So he does. And she sits there and just says, I, I care about you. God cares about you, the way you're going in your life and this whole thing. And this dude like comes to faith. And the next week I'm like, what in the world? Through pizza and some probably two buck chuck or something, you know? And, but how simple is it to just bypass this? It's not going to take some massive event. It takes a massive amount of disciples who will be sold out that even when we gather around our table, it is a place where we know that Jesus can welcome brothers and sisters home. And so we need to get past some of our, our personal values of privacy and security and allow them to be replaced with kingdom values centered around love. Hospitality is a practice that is so peculiar and weird in our culture today. But Christians can be the ones that are gathering diverse groups of people in the name of Jesus and inviting them to a common table just to have conversation, to have disagreement. But hopefully, the Spirit of God will open the door for you to share the gospel with them. The last practice that I want to talk about is the practice of generosity. Generosity in a consumer culture is profoundly prophetic, meaning pushes back on the culture. I want you to look at this passage for me in 2 Corinthians and again, this is a practice that is rooted not in some idea, but in the very person of Christ, where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich, right? Might become rich. One of the fascinating stories that came out of my relationship with Cameron, this leader of the Q Center, is that um, we have met together several times, and, and he was so struck by why you know, we showed up with this little gift of a uh, thousand bucks or something. He didn't get it. And I said, why is that so you know, confusing to you? Like we're, We know that you're serving people that are homeless and you're doing medical stuff and Jesus cares about those things. And he says, well, here I am in Portland, but I can't raise funds for that kind of stuff. And I'm like, you are in Portland, Oregon. You are the Q Center and you're struggling raising money. And so you're talking to an evangelical pastor <laughs> about money, right? 
why in the world, like proudly progressive Portland, why aren't they just showering and funding this thing that they love this because they love the agenda? Because it's one thing to be loud. It's one thing to say stuff on Facebook. It's a whole nother thing for it to cost you something personally. So a church shows up in a world like this and it begins to bless the world. Not, not just the Houston, I'm talking about in a ton of ways where you can show up and through generosity, people don't know what to do with it. We do this really basic thing every Sunday. We do a thing called change for a dollar. We have a bucket. We do communion every week. There's a bucket up there. It says change for a dollar. We encourage everyone to throw a buck or their change in the bucket. Comes out to 500 to 1,000 bucks a week, something like that. And that money exists for people outside of our community, but people inside of our community can access it to help their neighbor, their friend, whatever. And so people will know, like if my buddy's car breaks down and he doesn't know Jesus, but I can call him and show up and help with that. And so we have heard story after story where some family needed a wheelchair and the couple called and said, hey, can I get a change for a dollar offering? And they take the wheelchair over there and these families are bawling and they can't believe it. It's like changed their life. And that's not even generosity on our part. It's spare change. But we live in a very ungenerous world. We live in a world of productivity. We were, live in a world where it's my money, my security, my stuff. And so when people are struggling in this world and you show up and go, you know what? Money doesn't own us because we have a Lord and Savior that so we don't worship money, we don't love money, but we use money to worship Jesus. We love people and use money, we don't love money and use people. And those are two different stories. And you'll be amazed at how this changes us. So when you think about giving, and we know that the church in America gives about 0.2% more than the general public of America. That's not a great stat. But again, generosity is something that saves you from this story in the culture that says it's your money, it's your stuff, and it's all about you. It frees you up to live a life without that bondage to money. It also blesses the world around you, and it is countercultural to the world that that we're pushing back on. One year, the churches of Portland gave a gift to the city. And we gave a gift to the city to start a mentoring program because the dropout rate in Portland public schools is horrendous. So we started a mentoring program with the city and when the city would start the program and the churches would provide mentors and we would mentor the 500 most at-risk eighth graders all the way through high school. Um, we were able to lower the dropout rate by 15% when we did that. Yeah, it's amazing. And it was the mayor who announced that to us. But when we had, but we, they didn't have the money to fund it, so churches pulled money and we had 100 grand and we gave this check to the mayor for 100 grand. 
which is so bizarre, right? The church is giving the city money. And I remember like Willamette Week and all these newspapers were there and they, they, they didn't ever tell the story, right? Because it was sort of like, we don't want to highlight that. But you know what? It's, that's not why we do it anyways. It's for those hundreds of kids, right, that graduated. It's for the mayor who goes, I don't understand. We're Portland, Oregon, and you're my biggest ally. I think of the foster care families that we have. You talk about generosity. And there is a movement in Portland and all through Oregon, in every county of Oregon, where the faith community is stepping up and taking in these kids who have no home and DHS and the governor and all of these things are going, we cannot do this without the faith community. Why? Because the faith community is generous. It keeps showing up and you don't quit. Well, where do we learn that? We learn that from Jesus, right? We're not generous. Jesus is generous. And we've experienced that generosity and we're passing it on. See, that's the truth for all of these practices is that these don't generate with us. We are simply responding to Jesus who has done the work so that we can enter his Sabbath rest. He has canceled your sin. He has washed away your guilt so that you can sing, I am free at last. He worked so that you could Sabbath. He was the hospitable one who came and sought us when we were strangers so he can draw us near and make a place for us at the Father's table. We practice hospitality not because we're so hospitable, but because we know what it means to be strangers who have been welcomed by the mighty God. And we practice generosity because we know what it is to be absolutely impoverished without hope, without one skill, one good thing in me that I could somehow offer to God to accept me. But the God who has everything spent himself on me on the cross. Though he was rich, became poor, became cursed, became crushed, so that through his poverty I might be made rich in his grace. And if that ever gets a hold from our head to our heart, it's going to affect how we spend our money. It's going to affect how we think of work. It's going to affect how we think of rest. It's going to affect who we have at our tables. And if that was to actually be shaped by the gospel of Jesus, if we were to be those Jesus people in the world but not of it, faithful followers in exile, then ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you that the church will thrive and that people will come to faith and it'll be weird and messy and that's how the church has always been, right? Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful that um, as men who have sinned and were far from you, that you've brought us near, not by anything good in us, but because of your love and mercy and in your grace, you have come after us in Christ. And God, that is more than just justification, 
But it also calls us into a whole new way of being that we have left the kingdom of darkness and been transferred into the kingdom of the son you love. And in that kingdom, there is a new economy, a new way of life, a new way that we live. And we do that in the midst of a world that is not our home. God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, make us a faithful presence in our world. May we love who you love. May we serve who you want to serve. May we have mercy on those that you have mercy. And may we see who you see. Would you make us a prophetic witness, God, who speaks truth to power, who pushes back on the false narratives of this world and who lives such a faithful life that that it critiques the very culture and the values that push against God and we know the only way God that that's possible is Jesus if you continue to convert us if you continue to change us if you continue to sanctify us by your spirit And so I pray, God, for my brothers as we travel home and tomorrow they're going to hit their work week, that they would hear themselves called not into a job but to the vocation of being sent by you to help the flourishing of their communities through their work, that they would serve you as a beloved son in the congregation that you have placed them. I pray, God, that every one of us would be able to lead one of our neighbors, one of our co-workers to Christ this year because they have sat at our table and we have got to know them and talk about their souls. And so, Jesus, we are grateful that we can be put on this adventure because you have been on this adventure for the whole time. And we're just following in your dust and joining you and participating with you in your mission. Thank you, God, for saving us, for calling us, and for sending us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been great being with you guys. Thanks a lot.